Hello, and welcome to the eighth episode of Privacy Laws, a podcast where I talk with the most well-known experts in the field of privacy and have some laughs along the way. I'm your host, Donata Strings-Gilbert, and today we'll be talking about data controllers and data processors, what those are, how to determine which one you are, and what your obligations are as a controller or a processor so that you can comply with the requirements of the privacy laws that apply to you. My guest today is Odia Kagan, who is a licensed attorney and partner and chair of GDPR compliance and international privacy at Fox Rothschild LLP. She is the chapter chair of One Trust Privacy Connect in Philadelphia and an advisory board member at the International Association of Privacy Professionals. Odia is a certified data protection officer, certified information privacy manager, and a certified information privacy professional. She's also a fellow of Information Privacy at the International Association of Privacy Professionals. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us a bit more about your career and what got you interested in privacy? I started a long time ago, and one of the things was back when it was very rare and difficult to do a remote LLM in kind of a specialized subject. I did an LLM in basically European privacy and kind of learned all of the data data protection directive, the e-privacy directive, all of the relevant case law and found it interesting. And then generally speaking, what I really like about this area that kind of drew me into it is sort of basically, and I tell people this, it's kind of the pros and the cons are the same time. It's a something that's it's ever changing. It's fast paced. It's really complex and it's very tech oriented. And so I think, you know, I've been told that I have a good ability to kind of break down very complex things into kind of simple, digestible, actionable pieces. And I think that's part of the piece that draws me to it is kind of, you know, simplifying the complex. I get that a lot. I obviously follow you on social media. And you just talked about, you know, the difficulties in keeping things up to date. You know, what are your tips for keeping up to date with privacy news? It's basically being persistent about it. I mean, I think you have to really like it. And you have to really be persistent. I just recommended to my son kind of strongly to read a book called Bounce. And it talks about what you need to gain mastery in your chosen area. And it talks about people like David Beckham and Mozart and, you know, other people who were achieved mastery in their area at a very early age. And it seems like they are just kind of naturally talented, but actually they put in a ton of time, except they just started it, you know, age three or something or age two or whatever. And so basically that's kind of the way to do it is that you have to keep doing it. It is a great time investment. It is a greater time investment than your counterparts who are doing other subjects like you know, wealth management or tax or corporate or M&A. It's, it's just more time investment. And but it's interesting and it's exciting. So that's something that you have to keep in mind. It's just like, you know, it's kind of like, like, how do you keep up with a moving treadmill? You got to keep moving. So it's kind of the same thing. 
That's very true. One of the main parts of my job is staying up to date with new legislation. And I spend so much time doing that, but it's kind of fun. I like it. I like comparing the different bills and and what they mean and who they affect. And yeah, you do have to find a way to enjoy it. I'm not sure if you saw the latest clips from the Victoria Beckham and David Beckham. They're doing some kind of documentary. And there's a clip. I saw the whole documentary. Okay. Well, there's a clip where Victoria tries to convince her husband that that she grew up poor and then he kept on asking what kind of car did her dad drive and it turns out as a Rolls Royce. <laughs> oh yeah, I saw that. It's really I mean I really liked it. So I I told you that I that I already read about David Beckham in that book, but and so I was kind of I'm not a soccer person at all, but I did respect him for, you know, what I read. But then after the, the documentary, now I want to be friends with him because he seems like such a like an approachable person and kind of it was a good it's a it's a really interesting documentary. I liked it. Very cool. So where can people find you on social media so they can watch all the news that you post every day? So I do a lot on LinkedIn and I try to also port it over to X as well. So that's a good place to do is to follow me on LinkedIn and X. We have our marketing team also puts up some content on my firm website. And if you are interested, also, you can like direct message me or contact me and I can add you to a little mailing list of updates as well. Oh, nice. I'm definitely going to need to be added to that, too. So you have a lot of really great certifications. And for somebody listening in who's interested in getting into privacy, what is your recommendation for the first certification that they should get? I mean, I think that the the thing that's most important is to figure out what your direction is and what you are interested in, right? I mean, there's privacy certification, IAPB has some, and there are others um, that are more kind of information security related. Some of them are more implementation and management related. I think it really depends on what you are, like what your direction is. And the easiest thing to do is kind of you know, it uh, is is like do your research first, right? Like either, I don't know, buy the book or ask people before and figure out if that's the topic that interests you and then, you know, dig deeper into it. There are a bunch of, it really depends. Like we have, you know, the, the sort of lawyer bias and kind of the legal privacy stuff, but there's a bunch of really interesting things now with like your, the, the Euro, pri- the Euro privacy uh, implementation with like ISO implementation, the NIST um, risk management flame framework, DPO courses, privacy technology. So there's a lot of stuff available. It really depends what you're interested in. Yeah, definitely talk to privacy lawyers or people in the privacy space of, of what they're doing. I work with a lot of law students at the ABA and they seem to find a lot of help with that too. So let's get into the main topic of, of today, which is data controllers versus data processors. So let's kind of start off with a quick overview. So what is a data controller? So basically, a data controller is something that determines the purposes and means of the processing and sort of really basically is the in charge of the processing, right? And sets the course for the processing. The processing is done on its behalf. Now, I'm saying it in a lot of different ways because there are a lot of kind of real life implementations that makes this make this more complicated than just that, right? You have like classic use cases where, I don't know, I am a company and I engage somebody to do something for, I do something, I collect information 
I collect names of individuals to market to. I have employees and I process their information, right? So I am an entity that does stuff with personal information, information of people. And I do that for my own purposes. That's kind of the general. There are nuances there where one, I don't always have to be seeing the information. Sometimes I don't even have access to the information. Sometimes the information is encrypted, but there are things that are done for me, even though I have, you know, plausible deniability, but I still instructed people to do it. And therefore I can be the controller. The other piece is by itself or jointly with others, which is this other term where in the European legislation, we have an actual joint controllership term. Um, In the U.S. laws, uh, we don't have it kind of per se, but you have a situation where um, you have a number of entities that are determining the purpose together, uh, processing the information for a joint purpose You also have controllers that are doing things kind of alongside one another and they are with the same information and they can be independent controllers, right? It's like, you know, the toddlers playing around each other are independent controllers and like, you know, the children playing together are the joint controllers. So that's kind of, you know, generally uncontrollers. Nice. And and what is a data processor? So the data processor is basically somebody who um, processes information pursuant to the controller's instructions, and they are processing it basically on behalf of the controller. And so that is a situation, the classic situation of a processor would be where I basically outsource a piece of processing, right? So the necessary elements are that it's data processing. And I am basically, you know, the information is processed, you know, is instructed by me on my behalf, right? And so the classic is, I could have done it myself, but I outsourced it in order to, I don't know, make it easier, cheaper, faster, more efficient. So I, you know, instead of sending emails, I engage a third party to facilitate the sending of the emails instead of like, this is like my dream, right? Instead of like posting all my posts on LinkedIn, there's something magical. I probably, there are things like that. I just need to set them up or outsource the setting up. But anyway, that there's a third party that does it. I could have done it. They're doing it for me. The way that I usually try to think about it or explain it is that, you know, processors are for data processing you know, like LLCs are for like tax treatment, right? They're see-through. They're like an actual entity, but for the purpose of the tax, right? You go up to the owner and for the purpose of the processing and liability, you go up to the controller. So the processor does stuff, but they don't do it for themselves. They do it for me. And so their involvement is supposed to be see-through. That means that they don't, the processing by the processor doesn't have under GDPR, does not have or need to have its own legal basis because the legal basis is mine, the controllers, and I just do something to help, right? So that's kind of the way that I, that I usually think about it. So if I'm like a construction company and I hire a marketing agency to send email newsletters on my behalf to my customers... I'm the controller and the marketing agency is the processor. 
So the marketing agency concept is a little more bit more complicated because there depends on what the market marketing agencies do, it could differ. So so the answer is this. I am a company and I engage another entity to send emails on my behalf. I give them the email addresses and they send out emails. They are not allowed to use the emails for any other purpose other than sending the emails on my behalf. There are services like that. That would be a processor. If, however, this company as part of this deal, right, in a lot of cases, the telltale sign of this processing is you need to enter into an into like open another account and enter into like, you know, log into an account. That could be a hint. But basically the difference is if you have a party that while providing you with the sending of the emails also uses the emails for themselves, they enrich their, their like in, in similar situations, right? Like they enrich their lists. They use these people and start marketing it to themselves, to their own list. They use it to market other clients' lists. They share it with other third parties and give that information. That's where it starts getting take getting out of uh, control of the of the processor realm and starts being controller. Got it. So why is it important to figure out if you're a data controller or a processor? Like what's why is it important to make that distinction? So that's an interesting question because like in Germany, they started like, you know, developing an allergy to processors and everybody's either a controller or a joint controller. I think the answer is that it basically, first of all, I think that you shouldn't really try to jump through hoops in order to not be a controller if that's what you are. There was a trend at the beginning of GDPR and there was also a trend in the beginning of CCPA where companies started trying to, you know, push a square, a square controller into a round processor hole and like just really needed to be a service provider in order for this not to be a sale under CCPA. And that's not super helpful because in the interim, right? And this was sort of clear from the beginning, but has become clearer under CPRA um, and also pursuant to GDPR enforcement. Data processors can and have been directly enforced against by regulators, right? Service providers can be enforced against by the California authority. This was in the final statement of reasons under the CCPA. The California AG stated that. And then it's kind of, you know, pretty explicit in CPRA that there are obligations that service providers are subject to, right? And if you do not have the DPA or the relevant contract with the service provider that can implicate the legality of the processing. So first of all, from a one sort of maybe reason why not, like a re, a, another re, a reason why not to try to figure it out is that, ooh, if you're one, then you're out of scope or you're out of liability or you can't be enforced against. That's not true. Um, the... Technically speaking, the universe of obligations of a controller or a business under CPRA is broader than the, the number of obligations, the scope of obligations is broader than that of a processor slash service provider in like the general universe. However, 
in real life, right, if you're not writing, if you're writing a law school exam or a bar exam, you should probably say that. In real life, there may not be a much big, much of a difference. Why? If you are a service provider and you provide some sort of service or platform, right, the liability and the obligations that you have with respect to that platform and service, they are not smaller than that of the controller, right? Under GDPR, the controller is not even allowed to engage you unless they are certain that you would be able, that in using you, they would be sure to comply with GDPR. So you are, your service is, is supposed to be such that they would comply with GDPR. That's the whole point. Remember the C through LLC thing? It like goes right up to them. They're subject to GDPR. They need to comply. Therefore, vis-a-vis you, they need to comply. Therefore, you need to enable this compliance. And so what does that mean? It means that with re- the obvious things, right? Information security, that's on you. The DSARs, right? The, the data subject requests, the consumer requests under the U.S. laws. That's usually on you, not necessarily the interface with the end user. That can be the controllers, but all of the stuff in the background that needs to happen in order for this to happen legally, that's on you. Transparency that the controller needs to give. Yeah, the controller needs to give it, but the controller is not going to know what's happening if you don't tell them. So you need to tell them. That's actually become much more relevant now when there are automated decision-making and things that are like the processes are more complex. DPIA, okay, maybe you don't need to do a DPIA as a data processor, but your controller needs to do a DPIA. So you need to make it happen and help them do it. And so if you look at Article 28 and all those in, in GDPR and all of the requirements of the data processor to assist the controller, they need to assist the controller. Can they be enforced against directly by the regulator? Yes. Is it less likely that they will get enforced against by the regulator? Probably. Is it more likely and very likely that they will either get enforced against by their controller client, meaning they will sue them if something goes wrong? Definitely. And increasingly, they will also not be able to get the controller's business if they are not compliant, demonstrate compliance, are able to set the controller's um, mind at ease. So like in practice, with respect to your core service that you are providing, there may not be a big difference. So you, the data processor, okay, you don't have to come up with a legal basis. Mm, Okay. But if your service that you're providing is something that's impossible for your client to use, because I don't know, let's say remote real-time uh, facial recognition is no longer allowed in Europe because, you know, the AI act is going to go a certain way, right? Okay, well, then you will have developed a product, the legal basis for which is impossible to accomplish. Okay, well, it's not on you, but you won't get any business, right? So yes, there is a delta because as with respect to some of your own stuff, right? Like your landing page or your own employees or things like that, right? You are not maybe subject to GDPR as a data controller. And if you were, you would need to do all of these other bits too. But as with respect to the core service, there may not be that big a difference. 
It's really interesting that you mentioned losing business. So as a business ourselves, we're subject to GDPR. We're a data controller. So we need to make sure that any data processors that we use are compliant. And sometimes our team will bring me a list of 10 different services that they want to use for a particular purpose. And then my job is to check compliance and do vendor due diligence. And sometimes we're left with zero or one, you know, or sometimes we're left with, okay, well, they're close, but I have a question about their privacy policy or their DPA or something like that. And then I email them and they give me a nonsensical answer. And all of a sudden, okay, well, now you didn't even present me with all the information that I needed. You didn't answer my questions. You're automatically not going to be a vendor. And that, I think that nixes a lot of companies from the list. I think it does. And I think it will increasingly do that because under GDPR, right, this is, you know, we're not new here and it's increasingly happening under the privacy laws of the U.S., I think we're going to see it as soon as the enforcement kicks in. I think we're going to see it in two aspects. One, we're already seeing it from the FTC enforcement perspective, right? BetterHelp, GoodRx, the FTC is being very explicit about you're using third parties. Yeah, but, you know, they're very ubiquitous third parties. They're like the leaders in the market. That's like my favorite one that I hear from companies. Right? Do you know what it is that the agreement says? Oh, they wouldn't be some. They wouldn't be some, that's something that isn't permitted by law. No, it's not not permitted by law. It's permitted by law, but the 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 fact that it's permitted puts on requirements on you to do things. Do you know what they are? Have you vetted them and all that? I think so. One, this kind of puts the onus much more so on the company, there used to be on the procuring company, right? There used to be all these like, you know, spreadsheets and like vendor management processes, etc. that companies that are financial institutions and subject to, you know, Gramm-Leach-Bliley, Fair Credit Reporting Act, all of that stuff, right? Those were the ones that were taking it seriously, maybe HIPAA, all of these quote, non-regulated entities, which was, you know, a euphemism for FTC, weren't really worried about it. Now the FTC is looking at it very closely. Um, under CPRA, there is there are specific provisions that basically say they're they're like a carve out or a carve in, however you want to look at it, that the company, the business, will be liable for a violation by the service provider for or third party for violating the law unless they knew if they knew or had reason to believe. Now it's the company's responsibility to show that they didn't know or have reason to believe. And the reason to believe that we had in the original law has now, as we had, I've, I, I predicted that and told clients this before the regs came out, but now it's conclusively had reason to believe is, do you have a CPRA compliant service provider agreement or third party agreement with all of the provisions and all of the stuff that you need to do? And if you can't show that, then you could be liable. And so I think that part is only going to get more, more obvious as we see more enforcement. Quick tangent. I absolutely love vendor due diligence because it's kind of like trying to dig up dirt on somebody. And I remember years ago, I was doing due diligence on a very, very popular company that would shred documents. Won't name names, but it's like one of the top three. And there was a lawsuit that they lost um, a couple years back where basically they would take the documents that were to be shredded and dump them in a public park, in the trash cans in the public park, and not shred any of them. Oh, um, no. 
obviously they didn't pass vendor due diligence because that was their main job was to shred the documents and dispose of them properly. Like that was the entire point of this vendor and they would dump them in, in a public park unshredded. So yeah, they're they're kind of fun, but talking about, you know, uh, processors and and sub processors and all those things, there was a case in 2021 where Canel fined a data controller and its subcontractor 150,000 euros and 75,000 euros for failing to take security measures to deal with credential stuffing attacks. So can you talk a little bit more about, you know, how the requirements of the processors and the subprocessors and the controllers, how does that tie into security as well? Not just, you know, not selling the data or not using it in, in certain ways. So I think there's a couple of interesting things here. First of all, there is, as I mentioned in the beginning, right? Usually when the provider is touching the data or hosting the data, the provider is the main kind of point of responsibility for the information security, meaning, so I'll I'll clarify. First of all, what's the obligation? The obligation is under Article 32. You need to have adequate technical and organizational measures to protect the information. Um, Article 32 is kind of, you know, doesn't really specify a lot. There are a lot of standards. Like if you open, you know, things, if you speak German, you can like read things for thousands and thousands of pages of what (laughs) Article 32 means with standards. There are, you know, industry standards like, you know, the NIST CSF or ISO 27001 or, you know, for smaller companies, there are, you know, kind of more basic uh, compliance, but basically it needs to be the the, the information. And, and if you want to look at like much more basic stuff and kind of for simpler information, there is FTC enforcement cases. There's the start with security blog, the stick with security blog. They had a bunch of things on what are, um, what's adequate security. Obviously it needs to be commensurate with the the amount of information, the sophistication of the information, sensitivity of the information, et cetera. The obligation needs to be is so that's kind of the what's the obligation. The buck stops with the controller always, right? The controller is at the front of the line all the time. And therefore, even if the control the sub the processor messes up, even if the subprocessor messes up, there was a recent CJU case where uh, a processor uh, engaged a subprocessor without the adequate permission, et cetera. The subprocessor messed up. The controller was held liable. Now, the controller is always liable. However, and this is the piece where I said it's not that important uh, to classify. Sure, the controller is the one that got sued. Sure, the controller is the one that gets enforced against if the controller is an EU controller and you are a non-EU provider, you know, safely here in the U.S. and, you know, Keneal can't get to you, right? But what do you think is going to happen pursuant to um, all of the undertakings that you made in the DPA that you executed with them because you have to execute it with them or the MSA or all of that, right? Like you made contractual provisions and one of the key attributes to providing a service is to adequately protect the information and you didn't do it or the subprocessor that you engaged didn't do it and you are liable fully downstream. So of course you're liable and they're going to sue you. Right. Mm-hmm. So so that ends up being your responsibility. The interesting piece there is that and it reminds me of something um, more recent is that 
the way that the European data protection authorities kind of look at things is they are kind of looking at it not just with respect to kind of the immediate things that you have to do, right? Like, oh, you don't want, you know, this needs to be encrypted or there needs to be multi-factor authentication, et cetera. There also needs to be like, how are you securing the infrastructure in order to like three steps down the line, prevent something from happening, right? Because credential stuffing is kind of more of a sophisticated, like kind of multi-step um, issue. And that reminded me that Garante, the Italian data protection authority, like a week ago, maybe, or maybe less, it started an investigation with respect to not web scraping by AI. It's not the liability of the scraper, which we've seen a lot of discussion in the EU and even in the US about. It's the liability of the scrapee, right? Like, what are your responsibilities in protecting your digital properties from a tech perspective, from a contractual perspective, et cetera? Like, what are your liabilities to prevent the data from being scraped? Not the scraping without permission, but actually the scraping of publicly available information, right? And so that kind of is the same concept of the, the breadth of you, of your you, the controller's liability. And in that aspect, right, that breadth is bigger, right? You have a bit more obligations because you're sort of looking at the bigger picture and then you're supposed to fit in these data processors that handle specific pieces of that of that processing adequately. Yeah, you can really go down the line forever with this, with the data processors and the subprocessors, because everybody, whenever you look at their DPA, there's always a list of of a hundred processors, and then if you look them up, and then they have their own processors, and then you look, and then it just goes round and round and round forever. It's it's you know the the transfer impact assessment that everybody wants um, that that we need to do that that were you know even crit- more critical before the DPF, right? But the transfer impact assessments, when that came out and the guidance came out, but from the EDPB, it was like, I was, uh, I was saying, it's basically, you know, you have to keep going until Middle Earth, right? You keep going through the processor and subprocessor until you hit, you know, you get to, to the end. So, so yeah. So one of the obligations of controllers is, is providing instructions for processing the personal data. What does that mean to, to provide those instructions? So basically, this is a situation where I always tell both the controller clients and processor clients that vagueness is not your friend and specificity is your friend, right? I used to listen to when she had podcasts and I read all of Brene Brown's books. And she has a quote that she when she talks about managing your team, actually, and like leadership and managing your team, she has a statement that says, you know, paint done for me? Like, what does done look like? What does the assignment look like? And then she says that clear is kind and unclear is unkind, right? And this is the situation here because the instructions are actually helpful for both parties. It's basically what are the parameters? What are you allowed to do? What are you supposed to do? What are the actions you're supposed to take? When you don't have a specificity here and something goes wrong, right? If nothing goes wrong, nothing goes wrong. But then again, if nothing goes wrong, then, you know, you didn't need a contract in the first place, right? If something goes wrong, then you start looking at, okay, well, what was breached? Did you, for example, 
if you go beyond your instructions, you become a controller. And also, if you want to use a, an agency metaphor, right, you exceeded the scope of your agency. This is a problem vis-a-vis the controller, right? It could be the, the third party could still, the individual could still be bound, right? But you exceeded your authority. That's not allowed. You are going to be responsible for that. The controller is not going to be responsible for that because that was not part of the deal. The more clear it is that what you're supposed to do, the easier it is to say, did you meet with your requirements or did you not meet with your requirements? So for a lot of these really, really large companies that act as data processors, what I've seen is that in their data processing agreements and their documentation, you know, all it says is that processing will occur in accordance with the instructions from the controller, but there's no actual instructions that are attached. It's like, what do companies do in that sense when you're a small company trying to engage with a large data processor? Like, do you send them instructions and ask them to agree to them? So I think the, the issue is here. First of all, I can say that some of these big companies are under investigation by European DPAs True. <laughs> for not actually being a data processor, right? Like the Danish Data Protection Authority has been vocal about it, um, basically saying if you get a set a set menu or whatever of things and, and there's information being shared, et cetera, and you don't have any control over it, because it's basically like take it or leave it. Is that really a service provider? Is that really a data processor or not? There is very little control that you can do with respect to, you know, first of all, just generally amending these agreements. I think what needs to happen is this. First of all, actually with the bigger companies, sometimes there is more detail than in other places. It kind of depends. The instructions the, the referring back to whatever, the agreement, the statement of work, the whatever, that is not kind of forbidden by itself if it is clear from the statement of work or the purchase order or the whatever, what the actual processing is, right? If you say, who the instructions are for the performance of the services, okay, well, I have no idea. But if the, per- if the, if the, if the specs of the service are specific, then that's okay. The other thing with big companies, I mean, you know, you do what you can and we all live in the real world. I think the main issue is, and, and you know, like European regulators would tell you, well, d- d- don't use them and don't, don't use them. Okay, well, if you have the option to not use, that's really good. The minimum that you can do and you have to do is you have to actually go through and understand what is the service being provided what is the data processing as part of the service which is being provided? And this was actually handled in, you know, both, I think, in the DPC Ireland cases with Meta, as well as with the um, Danish Data Protection Authority, I think with Helsingor case and some of the others, that you need to look at the toggles, look at all the options, figure out what is actually going on, right? Like you need to, you know, click or unclick and what are the defaults and and that somebody actually needs to deep dive into it. Same, by the way, with the FTC. That's basically what the FTC said. They're like, you've got to understand what are these, what's going on? What is the data being processed? What is the data being shared? So first of all, you need to know what it is. Then you need to figure out, is this a problem or is this not a problem? And then you need to figure out what is it that you can do, right? 
either at minimum, right? You provide the information to the end users. You provide the opt-outs or whatever to the end users. You need to do something. But the minimum is you need to understand it. If you are not able to understand it, you probably need to ask them. In my experience with big companies, even though sometimes it's not included, like what's included in the set documents is holy, but there are like numerous like side white papers that they will give you that actually, you know, reflect it. And so that's not ideal, but if it actually reflects the truth, then that is, you know, a step, a step in the right direction, right? I would love for somebody to analyze the Facebook ad settings and, you know, kind of walk through what data is being collected, where it's being stored, who it's being shared with, what's, what is being done with it, all of that kind of stuff. I think that would be a really cool project for somebody that's not me. So where can controllers find more information about what to include in contracts with their processors? Well, it usually needs to be somewhere in the contract or somewhere in the specs, right? It needs to be, I mean, normally it would either be ideally, it should be in an exhibit, the data processing exhibit. And if not, it should be in the, you know, either in the services agreement or in the purchase order or in the statement of work or in the specifications. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it could be a lot of different documents that it could come from. So what happens, like in a hypothetical scenario, obviously, you know, what happens if a controller asks the processor to do something illegal? So, for example, like they ask them to continue to email people who have unsubscribed. What happens then? So under both of the under both laws, both in the US and the EU, you're one not allowed to do it. Two, you need to you need to tell the controller that this isn't happening. And then usually like you either stop that piece of the processing or you stop the processing. You're not that you're not supposed to do illegal. I mean, it's it like I don't know this the, the today's world is just everything is a sort of kooky, weird dystopia. Maybe it, it maybe it needs to be said that, you know, you shouldn't be doing illegal things. Right. Yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> so thank you so much for, for sharing your insights and your knowledge into data controllers and processors. Um, for a last segment for Privacy News, I'd like to ask you about the latest fines from the UK uh, Information Commissioner's Office, totaling 170,000 GBP for allegedly illegal marketing. So the largest fine was issued to Argentum Data Solutions for sending 2.3 million um, marketing text messages without consent. Do you think that those fines are enough of a deterrent? What can we learn from the UK in, in curbing the spread of these spam text messages that are that are plaguing all of us in the US? Right. So generally speaking about this topic, as opposed to a specific case. So first of all, the ICO, the UK ICO is very, very proactive with respect to its enforcement of the the PECRs and you know the unlawful kind of emails calls situation they are very you know persistent and consistent i think that you know the email without consent situation is something to really take seriously both specifically in the uk and generally in europe And I think that the other thing, which is interesting, and this came up in a client conversation, notably the ICO in a different case, actually kind of really strongly enforced a an unlawful uh, emails that were sent to unconsented to some unconsented users, where it was like a one time email. 
And it was like a, something with respect to a charity initiative that the company had initiated. And so the fact that this is for a good cause and for charity, et cetera, is sort of not, you know, an impediment to enforcement. And I think that it sort of seems like it's not innovative, right? Like, you know, the, the calling or the emailing or whatever, but like this kind of back to basics situation, these enforcements are ongoing and they're definitely something to be, you know, to pay attention to. We, I definitely think we need this here because I get at least 10, 15 text messages and calls per day that are just purely spam. It's infuriating. So it's interesting because that enforcement in the U.S. is also pretty robust. And the can spam obviously is an opt out law, which is kind of centered around uh, misleading and ease of unsubscribing. But there has been enforcement on these issues, including significant enforcement. And with respect to the text messaging, right, the TCPA is pretty strict and has a private right of action. And I have seen, I mean, there have been a bunch of like really serious enforcement. So I think in the U.S., obviously, there's always more room and companies going under the radar. But like this is definitely something that the U.S. also takes very seriously. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today. And, and for those listening, um, please make sure to subscribe to Privacy Law so that you do not miss our next episode.